Well, this morning, we're going to start out with a fun little quiz to see how well you know uh, your manners. I found a little etiquette quiz on the internet, so we're going we're to try this out. We've got a few questions here for you. So the first one that's going to come up on the screen here says, when is the most gracious time to respond to an invitation? So option A can be within 24 hours of receiving that invitation, B, within one week of getting the invitation, C, any time before the respond by date listed on the invitation, or D, not too soon to seem desperate, nor too late to seem uncaring. What do you think? Shout them out. What do you think? I'm hearing some A's. I'm hearing some C's. The correct answer is A. Correct answer is A, within 24 hours. So some of you, you'll wedding season's coming up again. You'll need to know that one, all right, within 24 hours. All right, second question. In the first sentence of a thank you card, you should, A, include the words thank you. Seems like that makes sense, all right. B, pay the giver a compliment. It's a nice thing to do. C, mention the gift by name so that they're clear on what you're actually thanking them for. Uh, or D, include the emotion you felt upon opening the gift. I'm hearing a lot, lots of C's. Uh, actually, the answer is B. You're supposed to pay the giver a compliment. Now you're thinking, ooh. Because if you're like me, most of the time you start, you know, dear so-and-so, thank you for the... That's all. Now I'm like, oh, shoot, I've got to start giving people compliments when I do that. All right. Here's our last question. If you're with someone who passes gas, and then says, excuse me, so notice this is not the person who passes gas and then tries to like pretend like it. this person admits, they say, excuse me, what's the most gracious way to respond? A, say that's okay, it happens to all of us. B, try to keep the mood light by saying something similar to, well, better, than, better you than me today. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that one, but... Uh, C, don't say anything. You can acknowledge with a smile or a nod to show you heard the person's comment, but you, you don't want to draw much attention to it, so you just kind of let it go. Or D, you pass gas as well, so the person doesn't feel so bad. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? I'm hearing some Ds, some proud Ds, some Cs. The answer is C. You're supposed to not say anything. You just let it go. You can give them a little head nod or something, but just let it go. So some of you realized uh, you've got some work to do on your etiquette, all right. But, you know, we all have certain rules we're supposed to follow in different uh, situations. We've got rules to follow, things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And our story about Jesus today is a story about how you're supposed to act and how you're not supposed to act and how Jesus kind of messes with expectations on that. So you can turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. And this story comes right after uh, the story from our last sermon, where, where Jesus, he has dinner with Matthew, and then he raises uh, the son of a widow. And then shortly after that, we find this story in verse 36. So here's what Luke tells us. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So as the story begins, we meet this woman described as being sinful, and most people think that probably means she was a prostitute. Some, somehow, her whatever she did for a job, that was considered sinful. So most people think she's a prostitute, so that, that means some things when she shows up to this dinner. And Luke says, well, she's a sinful person. Everybody in the community knows who she is, knows what she's done, knows that she's sinful. And in uh, last week's message, I talked about how Luke doesn't call people sinful too often. He, in chapter 5, that's the first time he does that, but he only does that because the Pharisees call the people eating with Matthew sinners. And then after chapter 5, Luke begins to start to call people sinful. And the reason he begins to do this is because in chapter 5, he has defined what he means by sinful. He has defined in the context of that story that people who are sinful are the very people who know that they need Jesus, and they're the very people Jesus is searching for and looking for. So he uses this word not to, you know, try to knock this woman down, but to help us understand what everybody thought about her and to help us understand she's the exact type of person Jesus is looking for. And she's the exact kind of person who knows she needs repentance. And so she humbly comes to this, this dinner. And in the first century, this was actually pretty common. Homes were not as private as we think of them today, and so when people would throw a dinner party, you just kind of left the front door open, and people could come in and watch you eat dinner. How awkward is that? But people were allowed to do that. They could come in and they could stand kind of around the, the dining room area to listen in on the conversation, see what, what good information they're going to pick up on, what rumors they might, they might catch. And so this is actually pretty common. But what's odd is that how does this woman that everybody knows about slip in unnoticed? Usually there's a servant by the door to filter people out. Usually there's, you know, there's someone ready to catch her, but she somehow slips into the crowd and stands behind Jesus. Now, you've got to imagine the dinner table. It is not like the dinner tables that you have in your home. Jesus is not sitting at a table, you know, up, you know with his feet under the table, and she's like trying to crawl under. These tables would be pretty low to the ground, and everybody would recline. Notice that's what Luke says. He reclined at the table. And so that means you lay on your side, you prop yourself up on the elbow of one arm, and you eat with your other arm, and your feet are sticking away from the table. So she's able to stand with the crowd around the edges of this dining room, right at the feet of Jesus, and then in the middle of dinner, she makes a scene and gets down and begins to wash his feet and begins to cry over them. And she brings this alabaster jar. And now, you got, this is a pretty small jar. Like, ladies, when you go to buy makeup, you know how, like, they come, they come in those, like, small bottles. You got to think that size. Don't think this big old water bottle or giant barrel. She could have potentially even wore, wore it like a necklace to keep it with her. And so she's got this little perfume jar. But what we know about this perfume she would have bought is it would have cost about one year's wages. So very expensive. Very expensive. And so this is what she brings to Jesus. And what she does is costly. It takes courage. It causes a scene. And it's very emotional. 
Because that little Greek word there for she, she wets his feet with her tears, that's the same Greek word you use to describe a rainstorm. So don't imagine just a few little tears. She is sobbing, which means probably everybody can hear this, and it's, it's probably everyone's like very uncomfortable, awkward. I wonder if people next to Jesus are like sliding over. Everyone's like, what's going on? This is weird. And so she's doing all this. And her actions, they have to make Simon the Pharisee uncomfortable because this is not what he had planned for this dinner party with Jesus. And he's not sure what to do. And here's this woman, and he knows who she is, and everybody else knows who she is. And now here she is at the feet of their dinner guest, Jesus, making a scene and doing all these things you're not supposed to do. I mean, a prostitute shows up to a dinner of religious teachers. That's not supposed to happen. Not just that, but here she is making a scene of herself crying, and she lets her hair down. Now, I'm going to keep this as PG as I can, but um, back then, ladies, you only let your hair down for your husband, or if you're a prostitute, for other men when they hire you. And so here she is letting her hair down so she can dry Jesus' feet. And that makes ever, that's going to make everybody awkward. Like, what is this? This means some things. There's some little, uh, little cues going on here. And Simon's probably thinking, why isn't Jesus saying anything? Why isn't he stopping her? Maybe even Simon, deep down, just feels like he's got to stand up and say, hey, you're not supposed to be here. You're not allowed to do that. You need to get out. But he's just, he doesn't say anything. Maybe he doesn't have a chance. Maybe he just, he's just too, too scared, too nervous, doesn't know what to do. And so Luke goes on in the story. When the Pharisee who had invited him, being Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, Is this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now notice uh, Simon said this to himself, and then Jesus answered him. Jesus can read his mind. He doesn't say anything out loud. He kind of says this in his head. And then Jesus answers the question. Jesus is great. So he answers him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Let me go ahead and answer your question. I've got something to tell you. Now that little phrase, uh, that's an idiom in the Middle East for, I have something really harsh to tell you. It's, it's like when we say, hey, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I've got to tell you this. And so Jesus really, he's going to lean in. And so Simon says, well, tell me, teacher. Go ahead, tell me. So Jesus tells a little story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, now this is where he flips the script on Simon. He says, do you see this woman? Obviously, yeah, everyone sees this woman. I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. 
And what we learn are all of the rules Simon broke when he invited Jesus over. As Jesus tells the story, we, we get the basic idea. We get it. Like if you had a very large debt forgiven, you're going to feel probably a lot better than the person with the small debt. And a, a denarii, that's the plural form of a denarius, and a denarius was the average wage for one day of work. So somebody with, who owes 500 denarii, that's, that's like a year and almost a third worth of work to pay that debt off. That's a large debt. And 50 denarii, that's, that's almost two months of work. So you can kind of gauge the size of these debts. And Simon, as the master of the house, had some etiquette he was supposed to follow. Because when you have a dinner guest over, you're supposed to offer a bowl of water and a towel so that they can at least wash their own feet. If you're really hospitable, you have a servant stationed at the door to wash everybody's feet as they enter your house. Simon did not do that for Jesus. In those days, if you were going to greet a person of equal status to you, you greet them with a kiss on the cheek. And if they're above you in status, you greet them with a kiss on the hand. Simon did not offer either of those to Jesus. It was also kind and honoring to anoint your dinner guest with oil, olive oil. Olive oil back then, super cheap, readily available. But Simon doesn't even do that. And this woman walks in with perfume worth 300 times the amount of olive oil and uses it to wash his feet and anoint him. And so Jesus, he's pretty harsh to Simon. Like, Simon, you didn't do anything you were barely expected to do for me, but this woman has gone above and beyond. His point is, Simon did far less than he was expected to do, and this woman did far more than what was expected of her. And the point of the whole story is right there in, in verse 47, where Jesus, where Jesus talks about the amount of forgiveness people have received. And we could, just, we could just say it this way. We could just kind of sum it up like this. The one who is forgiven little loves little, but the one who is forgiven greatly loves greatly. And so in last week's sermon, I said, Jesus calling you from death to life means you recognize your sinfulness and how much you've been forgiven. So this story is like step two. First, you recognize your own sinfulness so you can recognize how much you've been forgiven. But then you begin to set that forgiveness free in your own life with the way that you act and the way that you live. That forgiveness turns into the greatness that you love others with. And I have to wonder in this story, why on earth did Simon invite Jesus over anyway? Especially, he didn't treat him very well. Like, why bother? Why having him over as your dinner guest and not really honor him like you're supposed to? And I can't help but wonder if Simon was just doing what was expected of him. Because in those days, Jesus is he's the visiting rabbi. And so if you're the leading teacher of your little city, you're supposed to have the visiting rabbi over for dinner and invite all the other religious teachers over for dinner. That's just what you're supposed to do. And so I wonder if Simon, he just did what was expected of him and didn't go much further than that. So, okay, fine, I'll have Jesus over for dinner. If I have to do that, I guess. But I'm not doing anything else. I'm not going any further. Maybe Simon, I don't know, 
Maybe Simon had a question that he was planning to trap Jesus with, like the Pharisees so often tried to do. Uh, maybe he even had a plan to how to like speed the dinner party along, like he was just telling the servants, just keep bringing the courses, don't wait. I'm going to shovel food in my mouth between words, and we're just going to get this thing over with. Maybe he was even planning at one point just kind of stretch and yawn and, oh, look at the time, Jesus. Wow, it's, it's getting late, you know, and just try to move him out the door. He's just doing the bare minimum of what's expected of him. And in the story, it's pretty clear who the characters are with the different debt amounts. Simon in the story is the one with the smaller debt. But Jesus doesn't tell that story to say that Simon really doesn't have much to be forgiven of. Because as we know, we all have so much to be forgiven for. The point Jesus has is Simon doesn't think he has that much to be forgiven for. And he takes it for granted. Maybe Simon just thinks, if I just do a few more good deeds, it'll cancel out whatever bad stuff I've done. Or he might just be thinking, I haven't really done anything that bad. Like, okay, maybe I've made a mistake here or there, but it's fine. I'm a religious teacher. I'll make that up. It's okay. But the point that Jesus makes loud and clear is Simon loves little. And it's not because he doesn't have much to be forgiven of. It's because he has no idea how much he can be forgiven of. And some of you here, you do what's expected of you. You're just checking the boxes. Like, well, what's expect? Like, like maybe you're here, not, you know, because if you were honest, maybe if you're really honest, like, you don't actually want to be here right now. And you're kind of checking your watch, wondering, is Justin going to get done on time? Because I got places to be, and, and there's a lunch rush to beat, and, you know, there's things to do this afternoon, and so let, let's hurry this along, let's get going. And maybe if you're really honest, you're here because it's easier to be here than not be here. Like if you weren't here, your family would give you a guilt trip. Or you'd have to hear about it and you're like, I'll just go. It's better to go for an hour than get the guilt trip later. And so you do just what's expected. And that's it. And maybe, maybe deep down for you, you've realized, and to you, church kind of feels like a chore. Like it's something that you do because you have to do it but you don't really enjoy it anymore. You don't really love it. You know, like, whenever, like whenever we ask for anything, for you to do anything above that, you're, you're like, oh, nope, can't do that. And you've already got the excuses lined up and your stomach kind of sinks. Like when we say, hey, you know, it would be great to have some volunteers in kids ministry or Caleb could use some more volunteers for student ministry or hey, we, could need, we need some help with this or you could serve at that or here's a great opportunity. You're just like, ugh, no, ugh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm just, I'm so busy or, yeah, that's, that's pretty hard. I, I, yeah, you've already got your reasons. Because if you're honest, deep down, you don't want to do that. It kind of feels like a chore. It kind of feels like work. You don't really enjoy it anymore. You don't want to do that. And maybe you're kind of burnt out on church a little bit. And I wonder if the reason for that is deep down, you don't know how much you've been forgiven. Or maybe you've forgotten how much you've been forgiven. Or maybe after following Jesus for a lot of years, you kind of fall into the trap of Simon and thinking, I haven't really done anything that bad in a long time. Like for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty good. Jesus could give me a gold star most days of my life. And you think, There's, it's fine, not much to worry about. But the lesson that Jesus makes for us is in the story, we should want to be like the woman 
because what she does is costly, a little embarrassing, very emotional, kind of upsets some people. But she's the hero of the story because she does far above what, what's ever been asked of her or expected of her to do for Jesus. And the result when you forget how much you've been forgiven is you will love little. You will notice your heart begins to harden and shrivel up and you're no longer excited. And you're no longer willing to love and sacrifice for others because you forget what God has done for you. And it doesn't, it doesn't flow anymore. So can I just remind you this morning of what God has done for you? At one time, you were, you were dead in your sins. But because of Jesus, he's given you life. At one point, before following Jesus, you were, you were heading to hell. But Jesus saved you and made a place for you in his kingdom in heaven. You were once an enemy of God, but Jesus turned you into a friend of God. You were broken, and Jesus redeemed you. You were lost, and Jesus found you. Your life, maybe your life even seemed really good, but maybe it, it lacked some meaning or some purpose. And you just kind of felt like life was like this hamster wheel, and Jesus stepped in and he gave you purpose. He gave you a bigger picture for what your life could be. You were overwhelmed, and Jesus offered to carry you when you didn't know if you could keep going. And he's done so much than that for you. And he continues to do those things for you. Don't forget how much you've been forgiven and how much you can still be forgiven. So at the end of the story, here's what Jesus does. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They've seen Jesus do other things. They've heard about other things he's done, other miracles. But forgiving sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are and what you've done. Because notice Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? And Jesus and Simon both see the same woman in very different ways. Simon looks at that woman and sees what she is. Jesus looks at the woman and sees who she is. And for some of you here, you feel like Jesus looks at you and he just sees what you are or what you've done. And you're like, I, I, he can't forgive me of that. How can Jesus ever make that right? Or you still have some some titles in your head, some roles you play, some names you've been called, and you think that's probably what Jesus sees in me. But no, he sees who you are. He sees who you can become. He sees the best in you. Yes, he does see the worst in you, but he, he doesn't call you that. He calls you to be what he knows you can be. And he promises he'll forgive you. All you have to do is follow him. So here at Campbellsville Christian, we talk, when we talk about loving greatly, the way we frame that up is with our six expressions of God's love, which they're right outside in the foyer on the wall, right as soon as you walk out of here. We talk about how can we love God in study and prayer and generosity and mission and community and service. So I just want to ask you this morning, how are you doing in those? Are you doing those? 
Are you growing in those areas? And how are you growing in those areas? Because those are not just more to-do lists. Those are ways to say, well, how do I take the great love, the forgiveness that God has given me, and how do I like set that loose in my life? How do I do that for others? Well, those are, those are your six areas to kind of help you think about what you can do. And as you do those things, yes, you'll express God's love, but you'll also find more and more how much more God really loves you. You'll discover it. You'll be blessed by those things. And if you find yourself getting a little burnt out on church, like once you used to volunteer and serve for everything, and now you're just kind of like, ugh, I'm, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. It might be because you're forgetting how much God has done for you. And your love is a little, little shriveled up. And so you need to remind yourself and, and maybe even ask yourself this question. When's the last time you were overwhelmed by what God did for you? Now, I know emotionally we're, we're all very different. Like if you're like me, um, I've been described as Eddie Steady, which means I don't, I, don't, I don't get very animated emotionally too often. I'm pretty much the same just about all the time. Like I have to really work at it to express my emotions. That also means if you ever see me mad or crying, it's probably really bad. Like it, ugh, like you don't want to see me mad. It's ugly because I'm like a, I just, I'm like a what, pressure cooker. I just keep it and keep it and keep it. And then the lid pops off and then I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. But listen, even if you're not naturally like super emotionally expressive, what is it for you? What would it look like for you to be overwhelmed by what God has done for you? Maybe for some of you, that means you would go in a room and you would just sob your eyes out. Maybe that's what that would look like. Maybe for some of you, it would just be a little smirk. That you just, mm, that, that's it. Whatever it is for you, do that. Let God's grace overwhelm you with what he's done. Now, right after this story, I've just got to at least include this. The next thing that Luke does in chapter 8. And now, I just have to tell you, uh, I think this is one of the worst places for a chapter division. But the Bible Translation Committee did not ask me where to put these chapter divisions. I just think this is a bad place for chapter 8 to start. But the first three verses of chapter 8, Luke tells us this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured, listen to this, cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. That's a pretty big title. Herod's the king. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, I just have to throw that in there. Because for Luke to write his gospel in the first century, this is career suicide. Because back then, you do not include women in your stories. That's just a crucial thing you don't do. You mention what the men did. You, 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 don't, you don't mention what the women did. That's just the way it was. That's kind of the weird way it worked. And so Luke breaks some rules. And he tells us right after this story about this woman coming to Jesus and doing way more than, than, than is expected, Luke tells us, by the way, there are a group of ladies following Jesus along, and you know what they did? They financed his ministry. That's what they did. That's what they were able to do. And that also means that as Jesus is traveling and teaching, there's not just the 12 disciples. There's all these other ladies around listening to Jesus, seeing the miracles, learning from him. 
So Jesus is raising up both men and women to carry on his ministry. But what's really important about that is, for these women who have been forgiven and healed, one of the ways that they express that forgiveness is they, just, they did it with their generosity. They were women of means. They had money. So what did they do? They helped pay for things when Jesus needed things paid for. And some of you, that's, that's a way that you have helped. You help financially support ministry. You help make sure that there's, there's money to bless others, to help local mission local partners and our missionaries. You make sure that things around the church run. You make sure that when people are in need, we can financially meet their needs. And that's a good thing still to do. And so for some of you, this is a way that you, that you help. You do that through your generosity. And for some of you, hearing that people would like financially support Jesus, that sounds crazy. Like hearing that people would give like 10% of their income to the church, you're like, that's kind of crazy. That's your money. Like, you should keep that. That's yours. For some of you, you think it's reckless for somebody to use their savings and give that to a mission. For some of you, it might think it's ridiculous to spend your weekend on a trip with, like, middle school and high school students in Tennessee. You're like, that's your weekend. That's your time off. What are you doing? Some of you think it's wild that adults would want to spend, like, an hour on Sundays or on Wednesday nights, and some of them the real crazy ones, both, and they hang out with middle school students. Sorry, middle school students, it, ta- it, it takes some, some courage to like, you're just wild, you just are, and it's fine. We were all middle schoolers, we we're all wild at one point, but it's great. And they hang out with high school students, or they hang out with kids on the second floor on Sundays and Wednesdays, and you're thinking, How, why would people do that? That is nuts. Like, you have kids, and you're thinking, I want to pull my hair out sometimes, these rascals. And you think, that, that's wild. But, yeah, it seems reckless, it's costly, and it's courageous. That's what forgiven people do. Forgiven people love greatly. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you forgave us greatly and you loved us greatly. And you did that in so many ways throughout your ministry on earth, but ultimately, of course, we see that in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave. And we see that reflected in your, your first followers and throughout the generations as you have continued to call us to be people who are known by how we love others and how we forgive others. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower us and encourage us and strengthen us to forgive others who have maybe deeply hurt us but that you would help us to love others and to show people that you are good and that following you is good. So Holy Spirit, help us in all of these things. And Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.